0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: My leg and my arm weren't working at all. And I couldn't help her. I knew that I was potentially going to die.
2: Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and episode 85 with Paul Pritchard. This episode is a little different, and it's definitely worth listening to the intro to give you some context. Paul is a legendary British rock climber and mountaineer. He dominated the climbing scene in Britain in the 80s and 90s, until Friday, the 13th of February, 1998, when everything changed. Paul was attempting to climb the Totem Pole, an impossibly thin freestanding spike of rock in Tasmania when a boulder came loose and hit him in the head, almost killing him and leaving him facing the prospect of never walking or speaking again. We haven't edited this episode to alter the way Paul speaks at all and the episode traces Paul's life from a wayward youth trying to find his path to the thriving rock and roll climbing scene of North Wales where he found solace and purpose to the day when everything changed. It's a story of mortality, resilience and optimism and it's one of my favourite conversations I've had this year. Okay, over to Paul Pritchard. So we'll kick off, shall we? Um, All right, go on. I. It would be great if you if if you could just start by um, introducing yourself. Tell me who you are, um what you do, where you are right now and, and I guess where you're from. Alright,
1: well um my name's Paul Pritchard and I'm I'm a I'm a Brit originally, but I've lived in Australia for twenty years past twenty years in in Tasmania. Which is where I had um a massive accident (laughs) and so and um and i and i i came back after after doing a year in hospital i came back here and to 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 live and that's how i ended up here um what was the other
2: what was the other um well where are you from originally i think we'll come back to all of that which I'm very intrigued by, but where you're from and what life was like when you were a kid?
1: Well, I'm from Bolton, just north of Manchester, originally. And, I mean, I grew up on the top of Wilton Quarries. Like, actually, actually, like, you know, we used to knock our garden wall off the top of the quarry it was so close to the quarry you know and 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 the and, the, and the, the rocks would fall down kind of 80 foot onto the onto the the tip the tip below and so I grew up kind of knocking around the the Lancashire moors and and um actually, climbing climbs even though I didn't really know it at the time but graded rock climbs when I was when I was, when I was maybe 8 years old soloing up kind of moderates and then and generally being being a naughty kind of setting fire to the moors and watching the fire engines come come around and stuff like that you know um. Um. And when I was thirteen, my parents got divorced. I must say, um, my, we used to go to Spain for six months every year, whilst my dad sang in in nightclubs in well not nightclubs but um but but it was in benidorm and like the the english hotels would 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 um get my dad singing kind of frank sinatra covers and and tom jones covers and then and then um when I was about thirteen my, my mother said that we should have a secondary education and so so my dad kept on going to Spain and, and my and my and my mum stayed back with us and and then that and that and that caused problems with my parents and they got they ended up getting divorced. Um and as I and I remember going going off the rails a bit because because it, I was at that kind of puberty age, and and um, you know just vandalising and, and I remember setting fire to a derelict hospital and um, and getting in trouble with the police but but um I turned out all, all right <laughs> yeah
2: there's there's a lot to unpack there though I mean I don't want to I don't want to make it too obvious but y- you know you got into rock climbing right and when you were I don't know about what 16
1: 17 yeah I got I got into rock climbing uh, a teacher, a physics teacher, called Mr. Called Harold Woolley. Um, he's dead now, but he was a he was a climber from the the Rucksack Club, and it, and he um he took a group of us climbing in, uh, at, at Wilton Quarry. So I. I jumped at the chance more because I was going to get back to to the place where I used to live because at that time I was living in a hairdressers with my mum like a, a flat above a hairdressers um, in, in in town you know and um and so so I was going That was the reason why I started going, why I wanted to start climbing, and then I found that I was actually quite good at climbing. I was good at something for the first time in my life, really, because I was I was shocking academically and and really bad at sports. I remember vomiting every time we went on a cross country run. (laughs) <laughs> and so, and so it was just it was just like it just the door just opened for me when I, I found that I was actually really good at something for the first time in my life, and I think that I was lucky. I was really lucky to find that because a lot of well, not a lot, but a certain number of my of my friends. Got arrested. Were in prison. Got, um, you know, one of them got, got, um, killed joyriding when he wrapped a, a stolen car around a tree. So, so, um, I really, I really f- count myself really lucky that I found rock climbing. Hmm.
2: Yeah it's it's so easy isn't it to see how normal lads normal people can go one way or the other based on one meeting or one decision or
1: yeah and and i remember one time going climbing in the Lake District with him on a school trip and um and and I never looked back really. And I'm, I, and Wilton Quarry, I don't know if you've ever been there, Matt, but it's—I mean, it's a, its 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 kind of you know a green hole in the moor in, uh, in the moors, but but it—but it's um, I ended up sleep sleeping on the top of the cliff in the heather and like kind of on camping just going camping there overnight and and, and, and um climbing there every day and and um put it up putting up almost the hardest the hardest um routes in the in the country really or, or um by the time I was by the time I was seventeen, I was climbing E seven, and 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 um and that was that was um, the top grade of the day, you know,
2: yeah. And so, yeah. how did you get that good that fast?
1: I think that Bolton Bolton climbing wall had a, had a, had a lot to do with it, where where um. where I was going, it's demolished now, but it was a really famous climbing wall in like a brick wall, you know, brick edges. Cause it was, it was in, this is in the like early eighties and, and, um and people, you know, people like uh, Mark Leach and Mick Lovett and, and, uh, and, and um, John Hartley and John Monks and, There was actually, or Jerry Peel, there was Hank Pascal. There, there there was some really extraordinarily good climbers all there, and and um, so they took me under their wing, really, because you know, I was just, I was just a kind of. I was just a shoplifting terror, really, and uh, and then and, um, but also, also, I had I I had this really kind of crazy streak in me where I where I where I where I didn't seem to care for my own my own um, self. That like my... So, when I say E seven, they were all. They were always. They weren't. They weren't really that difficult. I mean, kind of six B and six C, but they. But they were. They were um, just really, really dangerous. You know, like, on, you know, some of them were solos, and so I think that's that's how I got that's how I came to climb some of the hardest routes in the country really was just because they were, they were, they were bold. Yeah.
2: And so if Mm -hmm. I can, if I can ask, do you think that was because that was what excited you or were you trying to prove something or did you just not care about your own safety?
1: No, I wasn't trying to prove anything, um, and I think that I think that my parents splitting up really affected me, and and I um, I was lonely. And so I have been questioning this. I mean, I think that I think it might have been a kind of bit of a cry for help. But, but it, um, but then I, but then I got really quite comfortable on, on, on this kind of terrain and, and then, and took that to Wales and, and Clamberis, you know, yeah. Mm.
2: It seems like a not an an obvious pilgrimage, but it seems like, especially in those days, that's what people did was they moved to North Wales if they were rock climbers. Um, and I've never yeah. actually asked this in the podcast, but what what was the scene like there then in Snowberry? Well, uh, so I moved
1: there in kind of eighty five, eighty six. Um, and straight away, I just realised that I, I just, I just found my, found my niche and my family, really, kind of, I mean just all these people that were kind of in a similar boat to me, really. Kind of, you know, it was the height of the height of Thatcher years, where. Where um, there was mass unemployment and um, IRA bombs going off all the time, and and uh, the the whole the whole um, the whole of society seemed to be like crumbling. And, and I think that I like to, I like to put it like this, really, that the, that that the government seemed to have little respect for, for us. We you know, we were living off kind of 18 pounds a week and on the on the on the, the door and and we um you know I, I realized that I was not I was not alone in 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 this kind of style of climbing there was actually like a whole host of people that were that were doing very dangerous climbs and not just dangerous climbs but just behaving in a dangerous manner um lots of drinking and drugs and 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 promiscuity i mean you know just like kind of so absolutely like a kind of rock a real rock and roll lifestyle if you if you if you you like but but um but with the added dimension, then that, that we would go out in the daytime, climbing, climbing just like incredible, incredibly dangerous climbs, kind of at, at Gogarth and in on the slate quarries and in the mountains. Climbs that would fall down, kind of. Um, Not long after after we've after we climbed them, even. No. Um, when I say things like this, I think I think, you know, I don't want to. I really don't want to exaggerate because I don't. But I I know that I'm not actually exaggerating. But some people, I think, think that maybe it's like rose tinted spectacles or something. You know. Yeah.
2: No, but I think that's what's so interesting about it. Like, you know, Ambaris has still got a reputation for being a, you know, certain type of town and it attracts, you know, the kind of the passionate and the dedicated climbers of Britain. But I think, you know, you were there, you've said it, I don't think you are exaggerating. It was quite, it was punk. It was rock and roll, as you say, but... Did it feel like a bubble? Did it feel... What I'm really interested in is, like, did it feel purposeful? Did it feel like you'd got this thing that was special and important and that it mattered? We were
1: one massive family that was just living out of each other's pockets and, and um, you know, Johnny was one of the only people that... Johnny Dawes was one of the only people that had a car and and you know he would take us I remember once kind of driving all the way up to Stornowaydale in the on, on the Isle of Harris and and um from from um, from Sleemanaris and then and then Doing the doing the first free ascent of this massive aid route of Doug Scott's called the Scoop, you know that's like gone down in 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 climbing folklore now. Um, stuff like that, you know. Yeah,
2: and I mean, obviously, I guess that all ended in Tasmania, which we'll come on to, but. How did you get into the big hills and go in, well, into mountaineering?
1: Yeah, that's quite interesting in itself, actually. Because um, Joe Brown and Mo Antoine, who's, they're both dead now, aren't they? But um, they had this idea that they wanted to take a bunch of hot shot rock climbers to the Himalayas and and um, see what they could do and so so we were going to go to this mountain called Sali Saga in India and but just before just before we set off um, Mo was diagnosed with with, with a brain tumor and, and and um and died and Joe didn't want to didn't want to take us on his own or um I guess you know I was a I was about 20, 21 or something then and um so. So um, we gave it a year, and we and we thought that we we still needed to go for Mo. oh um, well, that was it. It was going to be called the Youth in Asia Expedition, Youth in Asia, and um, and, and we, um, so we ended up changing our changing our direction to the west face of Bagarathi Three, which is just this, like monster monster kind of shaley shale capped face of but it had no claims on it at that time and i um, and we, we went there with um, joe simpson and bob, bob drury and anyway it was it was a it was a total write off i remember getting to the foot of the face and then a piece of shale broke off Broke off from nine hundred meters above me, and 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 um, and hit my arm, and and I, it didn't break my arm, but it but my arm was black, and so that was the end of the expedition. Like we didn't even get on the rock, but um and then, but I, I just. You know, just the landscape—the massive, massive landscape I didn't it—it it, it struck, it struck something in me. And and, and um, couple, Well, six months later, we were in—I was in Patagonia with Simon Yates and Noel Crane and and um, Sean Smith, and and we we, we did. We did this massive climb up, up the up the central tower of Piney. and that was and that was it. Then I was just, for fifteen years, I think, I just kind of never looked back. Yeah. Well, no, no. What am I and talking that- about? Actually, for for eight years I never looked back, and then and then and then I got then I got made disabled by a rock. But, yeah.
2: Yeah. So yeah, let's come on. I mean, there's a whole there's a whole different conversation about um, the mountaineering years, but then there's you know there's books people can read, so we'll leave them something to read about. But um, what happened on the totem pole? I know you've told the story many times, but please, can you tell it to me?
1: All right. Well, I guess I'll start at the beginning where where um, I. I wrote I wrote this book Deep Play in 1997 and and um, and it won and it won the Boardman Tusker um, and and I used that prize money to go on a round the world trip with my with my then partner Celia Bull and we. And we found us. We found ourselves, eventually, at the at, at the Totem Pole, where we were trying to make the second free ascent of of the Totem Pole. In 1998, I think it got its first ascent, first free ascent in 1995 by Steve Monks, and um, we, um, well. When we got out there, there was a there was a rope going to the top of the totem pole from from the mainland, and so we decided we thought that rather than go down a, like a, what looked like a, a hideously loose um, mainland, we would do a quick tyrolean to the top of the pole and then and then upsell down it. And it's amazing the totem pole. It's it's um. 65 metres high and only 4 metres wide. It's actually so slender that it sways slightly when you're on top of it. Um, and we, so I upsail all the way down to the bottom. And I'm, I'm there stood on this like one rock in the middle of the sea, because it's like sticks straight out of the sea. Um, but then, suddenly, I'm like up to my chest in water, and it's like wave, this wave, this wave um, hit me, and, and so I realised that there's no way that I was going to be able to, to, to we in no way are we going to be able to do the, to climb up, to do the, um, the first pitch nowadays nowadays you can hang there's a belay there's a hanging belay above the water but there wasn't back then um so i asked celia to come down to the halfway ledge it's like a it's split into two pitches and and so she comes down ties the rope off and then i i swing around the kind of a ret of the of the of the pole and with my Juma clamps on and and as I as I was doing that I didn't hear anything I didn't see anything the next thing I knew I was upside down blood poured out my head I remember looking at this looking at the sea looking up at the at the sea and and, and seeing all my blood dripping into the, like, pouring into the sea, and um, then I went unconscious a little bit, and then and then Celia was there by me, she'd she roped down to me, got me upright in slings, put her helmet on my head, I wasn't wearing a helmet, um, then she went back up to the Ledge, and she had to haul me thirty meters up, up, up to a, up to this ledge. There's just me and her down there. It was obviously in the day before mobile phones. Um, so by the time she got me there, three hours later, her hands were bleeding, and she was just. I remember her screaming at me, you know, just as I'm clambering onto the ledge, you're going to have to help me here if we're going to get you out of this. Um. And that's the first time that I realised then that my, my leg and my arm weren't working at all. And I couldn't help her. And... Eventually, she got me onto the ledge. Then she had to make me safe and go and get help. And so that involved kind of climbing back up the totem pole. The, to, the, there's a rope in situ left that, that she left there. And go back across the Teryllion and then run seven kilometres for help. And then... And then ten hours later basically after after the rock had fallen on my head anyway, um, I I was rescued. Paramedic came down to me, um, clipped me to his harness, lowered me down like we both upsailed down to a waiting what were, in Australia they called tinnies, like just a just a, a an aluminium motorboat which was acting as a lifeboat and but that was going up and down on the swell by six whole feet and so and so on the upsurge um, Neil he's called Neil Smith was the, my paramedic he who I still climb with he he cut the rope on the upsurge and we both fell into the boat. yeah it was very very exciting. Yeah, and then to a waiting helicopter on the beach. Um, then that's when I began my my year my year in hospital. Yeah.
2: And before we go into the year in hospital, can you can you remember all of that, or is that story from what people have told you what happened after after you were hit? I can remember, see, quite large
1: chunks of it. So I can, I can remember being dragged up the wall by Celia. I can remember feeling under my helmet that Celia had put on me, and realizing, you know, just like feeling that the hole in my skull and taking my hands away from it. And, and and just covered in blood, and but, so I, I realised then that I'd done something like really really badly to myself. Um, and I can remember being, I can remember falling into the boat, or I can, and I can remember kind of wake, really fighting to stay awake, thinking that if I did go to sleep. You know, it might be the last sleep that I ever made, so so um so really fighting to stay awake. But you know, I, I would go to sleep I'm sure for like two hours
2: at a time and then wake up again. But yeah. Yeah. That's so. what I was gonna ask. I mean I'm really um I'm just curious as to what you were thinking about and whether or not you realised it was as bad as it was or it wasn't as bad as it was. I mean Did you feel like that was it? It was game over?
1: I knew that I was... I knew that I was... that I was... um, potentially going to die. And... this is where I... this is really what... what The Mountain Path, my new book, is about, really. It's to do with... to do with just... Cause I, you know, I'm not I'm not a show off, but, but I but I do think that I'm a bloody resilient person, and and I um. I think I realised that the mountains that I climbed taught me taught me how to be resilient not in a, in any kind of like um you know the, just by op- osmosis almost and so so you know i had i've had i had two previous accidents one of them one of them where I actually drowned on gogarth and actually my partner glenn couldn't find a pulse, and 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 couldn't find a breath. Um, and again, that's a long story, but but um, but I, but basically, basically, I um, I realised that. These these experiences just taught me how to survive. Another one was I, I fell fifty five meters off Craig and Maggie um, ice climbing on center post direct, and um, and broke my back and um, fractured fractured my skull again, again. and um, and. And so I have had a lot of pain in my life, and, and but I realised that that just taught me, taught me how to go almost like a... I feel like I, I went into this kind of meditative trance state where I... Um, and, and I... Uh, I'm just sure that that's, that's why I survived. You know, I lost half my blood. Um, And like the brain injury that I received was really quite shocking, you know, and um and but also i think that is why i've done like really well after like these intervening 23 years as well um because not all not all people i've met in the rehab center have fared so well as me but i must say that I think I was very lucky. Where the rock hit me, it hit me on the left hand, the left hemisphere of, my, of the brain. So I've basically got, you know, left hemisphere brain damage with, with, a, with some frontal lobe taken, taken in. But that means that I'm the, the right hemisphere is is the big picture stuff, and the left hemisphere is a, is the little, is the kind of Targeted kind of. If you imagine a bird of prey, when it's hunting, and and it's got to have these pinpoint, pinpoint um, detection for 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 spotting a mouse on the floor. But it's also got to, when it's feeding on that mouse, it's got to be aware of of its surroundings, or else it can be prey for another for another. Um, bigger, um, a cat or something, and and so that's the right that's the right hemisphere of the brain at work there, and so I still see, I still, I'm, I see the bigger picture, and I'm a really optimistic person, and and and. Still, some people who experience brain injury are really quite are really quite damaged, you know. Yeah. So I realise how lucky I am.
2: And how was that year?
1: Well, it was. It was the year that it was the same year that Princess Di died, and um and <laughs> and i remember i remember hearing hearing that Princess had died and just breaking down into an abs- into absolute hysterical laughter and because be- because i I was emotionally labile, so I would laugh at like really quite sad or you know sad things and i would I would cry at really really um at really joyful things, and I'm still a bit like that. But, um, so I also remember when, when, um, Celia broke up with me about, about, um, five or five or six months into my stay in hospital that I, that, um, she saw me traveling back in the car and I just remember, and I just broke, I just, just laughed hysterically at her, and she, and she just, she was appalled, you know, <laughs> but there's nothing I can do about that. I'm sorry, Celia.
2: <laughs> yeah, but, well, it sounds like it wasn't exactly your fault, the hysterical laughter or the profound sadness.
1: No, no, it, It's not, and in some ways, I still maintain that that um, everybody. I still maintain that brain injuries are really, really crazy things, right? But they actually quite a lot of people are, are scared of brain injuries and you know brain injured people because they do hold up some kind of mirror to to. To society, almost kind of, um, you know, quite a lot of people deep down actually do f- feel like giving up the kind of act that they're supposed to. You know, everybody's kind of acting, and and so playing a role that you're supposed to play in a certain. In a certain situation, and I think that liability is, is, which is kind of showing the not normal, not normative emotional response is actually is actually um, sometimes quite profound.
0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: Yeah. That's very, I mean, that's super interesting because you you talk about um, how the mountains made you resilient and obviously those experiences carved the person that you became. And then... Obviously, you know, the physical ramifications of the injury were, is it your right side is paralysed? Yeah. But as well as the physical side of things, I guess what I'm getting at is there's all the negative things that happen to you and the negative consequences, but also what did that brain injury and that experience create in you and teach you and, and how did it change you for the better or the worse?
1: Well, it's, as I say, it's just I think so differently now, um, and um, and it's it's wholly, wholly better, even though even though I'm disabled and 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 you know I even. Undergo quite a quite a lot of discrimination in in public, and um, including disability hate crime. But um, so getting beaten up a couple of times, Um, but all that just I just look at it all as lessons and it's just it's just it's, it just makes me every every instance of every of every moment is just kind of there for. is there to teach you something I think including including that extreme discrimination and
2: violence but where does that, I mean, sorry to go into it, I just, that's shot amazing in a bad way What? why are people discriminating against you and beating you up
1: well if you talk to if you talk to anybody with a with a disability you'll you'll realize that that it's not unusual and and it's i have looked into it obviously and, and there's um there's there's a, there's a a few reasons and one of them one of them is that they think that you're you're taking stuff that's like in terms of benefits from the government you're taking things that are not rightly yours So it's it, it's a whole raft of, of of things one of them is yeah that they think that you that they're actually doing society a favor by by um, by eating you or, or just discriminating against you in, in and I mean in in um, Australia, I'm not sure what the unemployment rate is like in, for disabled people in, in Britain, but in, in Australia it's 57%, I think. so it's like it's actually not many people, not many disabled people have jobs.
2: Yeah. Mm. it's one of those societal yeah. problems that we kind of have forgotten to look at I think we just sort of see those people as being there
1: yeah but you know what I think that we've had we've had um, we've had marriage equality we've had civil rights we've, we've you know we've um, We've had gender equality. I, I think that I think that it's a really exciting time to be a cripple now, because it is actually, it is actually, it is actually um, our time. You know? Yeah.
2: And so uh, I mean, I sense you're saying you're saying that with a smile on your face, almost like you know that it's a funny thing to say, but you mean it, don't you? That's sincere.
1: No no it's totally sincere i think that i think that the the gains that that, disab- that people with disabilities are making no it, it, because i think that disability that like anyone can become disabled and so it's it's not the same as it's not the same as um you know not nobody can change the race or the sexuality but but um, it goes right to the heart of being being human, um, disability really, and 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 so I think that it's this is our time.
2: Hmm. And um, and normally when I ask this next sort of question, I feel like I know the answer, but I'm just guiding someone. I actually don't know what you're going to say to this, but. If you could go back and change it, would you?
1: Go back and change the, my accident? No, not at all. Not at all. And you know what? I haven't met a... I, I, I know quite a lot of, of people with disabilities now. And, I, you know, I, I, I do... um I've... I do this thing called Project Able, where you where all these all these pe- people with disabilities kind of go around to schools and and um, I and I also in I'm also in the Human Library and so which which is going around to workplaces and and schools and and telling your story and um and anyway I've never met. a I've never met a single person who, who who would have it any other way than what they, than what they are now. Because it's basically negating negating um, what what you are, isn't it? And so, mm, I think if you did wish that, if you did wish that, you would be quite. Uh, Quite a depressed person. Because you because you'd never be able to have it.
2: Mm. And how much how important has um, it become to you to be part of a community of people with disabilities? You know, it's not, you know, you say you know lots of people with disabilities, I don't, and I think that's you know, I haven't sought them out. Have you sought no. them out or it?
1: Yeah, well um, So those two, those two projects that I just talked about—I mean, they're the kind of they're the kind of work that you can get as a as a person with a disability. So so it's not so you know I still hang out with climbers and stuff, but but at the same time, I I just. I just found myself kind of in the mix, as it were, with with people with disabilities. And I'll tell you what, they're some of the strongest and most resilient people that I've ever met because they have had to deal with some shit in their life, you know? Yeah.
2: Yeah, and really interestingly, I think you just said, I still hang out with climbers. But I mean, you are a climber, right? That firstly that never left you as in no. you know that you, you you are the person that you always were then but also you're yeah. still climbing aren't you
1: i'm st- still leading a, the life of a, of a climber because i think that the lessons that i learned in the mountains are still put to use every every day of my life so so um that's that. You know, I I don't go climbing that often because it's actually quite painful for me. I drag dragging dragging my half a body up the rock, you know. But but, but, um, but I I um no. I much I much prefer. Cycling on my tricycle for 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 my exercise, which which when I say exercise, I mean I've been I've been going on kind of trike expeditions where I would go you know across Tibet to or or um from the lowest point to highest point of Australia and stuff like that. Mm. And and that's that's really quite it's a lot less painful for me. So yeah.
2: And why are those experiences important to you? Why do you need them?
1: Mm, that's a good question, isn't it? I mean, I think that I think that the that I do it for the challenge, and that's maybe quite a trite thing to say at first glance. But that challenge has this kind of questioning at its At its heart, you know, and, and, and that, this challenging questioning, if we do it often enough, it's like, it, it's like mind training almost and it, and it, and it, it teaches us how to be more accepting and And in the, in the face of kind of, you know, inevitable inevitable, um, experiences, um, like negative experiences that we're all going to face one day if we're not already facing them now. And so that's yeah. why I do it. That's why I really... I'm not explaining myself very well, but but um but but I think I, I think it is for the challenge.
2: No, and it's like you said before we press record, like you've just written a book about this, right? You know, that's it. You've spent the time and the hours writing the philosophy. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and. Yeah, um, I'll um I will I'll send you a book because it because I reckon that you, you'd really like it.
2: Well that's very kind, thank you. Uh, I I'm sure I will. Um Yeah, I mean I just you know, as we draw this to a close, like I'm intrigued by the writing process. You know, you were you were writing before your accident and you've written since. How different is writing for you now? And does it serve a purpose outside of just telling a story?
1: I didn't think it did, but this latest book, I mean, it took me six years to write it, right? And and, and it so it's a real process. And I had to think about every word. I mean, it's it's actually I think a type with one finger but i think i think at half the speed that i did before and so i think that slowness actually is really is really good it helps me but it also means that i I type at the same speed as i think so so you know i i could i could spend like an hour writing one one killer sentence um and oh yeah I've, I've I've forgotten what I've forgotten what what I was I did have something else well. to add to that but, but I've forgotten what it was <laughs> now
2: yeah well don't worry I just before we do end I, one thing that's kind of like shocked me. When I thought about it for the first time, when I was doing the research, was you had the accident in what was it, February '98, and yes. then, but then the the totem pole book won the grand prize at Banff the next year. So yeah, but you suffered a, a horrendous life changing brain injury. Uh,
1: yeah,
2: did you write the book whole- in hospital?
1: That whole book was written in hospital, yeah, with one finger, yeah, yeah. But how? Um, and it was in the early days of laptops. I remember. (laughs) I remember that it was like nineteen ninety eight. There was um, my good friend lent me this. Lent me this, like the first laptop, and it was like, and um, and I just, I just sat in my, in my ward. So there was like six beds to a ward, and and I, and I would just, I would just write. It was either that or go down to the day room with the other clients. I guess you, yeah, and um, watch. Reruns of the Bold and the Beautiful, or something, you know. Um, and uh, so, I mean, there's nothing wrong with watching the Bold and the Beautiful, but it was not for me. So, so, um, and I think that goes back to what I was saying about the the part of my brain that was damaged. Just was, I could still, I still had all my intellect. You know, and not. I think you would call it well. And even though, even though I was half half the speed that I that I was, and that's, um, I, I I still had, I still knew how to form a sentence, and also the fact that I would won the Bodmin Tusker for deep play. In 1997, meant that, meant meant that, you know, I sold all my climbing gear. I had this big room full of full of climbing gear and expedition gear, like many climbers do, and and um, and I sold it all. I remember crying when when somebody came to buy my skis and ski boots. Um, because I thought that I would never go climbing again, and and so I thought, well, what, 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 what can I do? And obviously, I just had this incredible accident with with the with incredibly bold rescue on this on like the the most sexy piece of rock in the world, and so. <laughs> and so um my so um ken wilson um encouraged me to write about it yeah yeah so that's how it, that's how it came about mm.
2: lucky us <laughs> um yeah so i I always end this with two questions, and oh, yeah? you can interpret them however you like Okay. Um, what scares you?
1: I don't get I don't get scared I think that's that's part of that's part of my problem <laughs> I, um I don't think. I think that it's probably probably uh, is a problem with my with, with my brain. But I but I actually I actually don't get scared. And
2: You're the first person who's ever said that.
1: I think I think maybe what I'd get I'd get very, very upset and, and sad and you know if anything happened to my kids, but I I would... um, I would see it... I'd still be able to kind of um, see it as a a lesson.
2: What brings you hope?
1: Uh, And I said that I'm a... I said that I'm a... I'm not. Op- I'm a incredible optimist, um, because of my brain injury. And so, I just see hope everywhere, all the time. Like, um, you know, this stuff at Glasgow just, just, um, the 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 COP twenty six, like I. I'm actually super optimistic about about anything like that that doesn't that doesn't mean that we don't have to work towards towards um solving all this stuff and that's that doesn't mean that we don't have to work towards educating people you know bullies who 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 bash who who bash disabled people or you know like um, i think i think everything's got to be worked at but but if you accept i'm just a i just think that if if you accept everything that befalls you it's still leaves hope for change and so it's not resignation and so so by radically accepting everything the, the good and the bad you you don't really need hope
2: that's amazing that's <laughs> <laughs> nice. right well, we'll leave it there. That was brilliant. Thank you so much.
1: All right. Well, good chatting with you, Matt.
2: Thanks for listening. The podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft, is a Cold House production and is produced and put together by Ola O'Murray and Alex Hall. If you'd like to keep in touch, you can email us at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk and you can stay in touch on Instagram at The